So good morning, listeners, and welcome to Sacred Space 102 FM, which is a Common Sea Inspirations production being produced here in our Common Sea studio here in Ada. And it's the 18th of October. It's the 29th Sunday in Ordinary Time. It's also Mission Sunday. My name is John Keeley, and help me to produce the programme and present the programme this morning. Shane Abrams, good morning, Shane. Good morning, John. How are we doing? Good, thank you. And also we want to welcome uh, our listeners, especially those who are housebound, lonely or struggling in some way today. And of course these days, maybe they can't get out and meet so many people as they did before. We hope we're going to bring, we we look forward to bringing some hope uh, um, and some good news on this particular programme this week. Just to remind you before we go any further that in part two of the programme we're going to continue our interview with Father John Roach, who spent nearly 50 years out in in Africa. And this week... um, a little bit of a trouble with the government, but we'll we'll save that for part two. In the meantime, just to remind listeners, our program is broadcast on West Limit 102 at 10 a.m. Sunday morning. That session, of course, is taken up mostly by Mass from Abbeyfield Parish, and we thank indeed Father Tony Mullins and the parishioners of Abbeyfield Parish for allowing us to share their Mass with them. 11 p.m., of course, is where we we broadcast our usual Sacred Space program. All of our programmes, and this one included, is up on our Common Sea Inspirations buzzsprout.com podcast page. Really just Google Common Sea Inspirations and you'll find all of our programmes there. You can listen back to anytime you like at your own leisure. Um, you can listen on, on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts or any other platforms. You can contact us if you wish and please do so by texting 87 or email Inspirations at gmail.com. So that that text again, 087-6088-667, or gmail, which is at Inspirations at gmail.com. Now, Shane, some part of the world you're going to bring us to this week. So Saints for the Week, please. So very quickly. So let me go to the Saints of the Week first. So uh, as John said today, today is the 29th Sunday in Ordinary Time. So we're not celebrating the feast day of St. Luke the Evangelist this year. For those of us praying the Psalter, we're on week one for the 29th week in Ordinary Time. Monday the 19th of October is the feast day of St. Paul of the Cross, the founder of the Passionists in Rome who died in 1775. Tuesday is the feast day of St. Maria Bartilla Boscardin. She is an Italian saint, a saint of the... Treviso region in Italy. She was a member of the daughter, Sisters of St. Dorothy and she is known for being uh, very uh, humble and, and, and uh, in her work and generally looking after the jobs that she had to do as part of the congregation. Uh, she joined those sisters in 1904. Then on uh, Wednesday, the 21st of October, we have the feast day of St. Laura of St. Catherine of Siena. She's a, Columban, a saint from Colombia, a teacher beginning in 1908. She worked as a missionary and then she founded the congregation of the Missionary Sisters of Immaculate Mary and of St. Catherine of Siena and who ministered to the poor throughout South America. And she was known for her defence of Indian rights. She died in 1949 in Medellin in Colombia, and she was canonised by uh, Pope Francis in 2013. Thursday the 22nd is the feast day, of course, of St. John Paul II, Pope for 25 years from October 78 to April 2005. Polish saint, of course, Bishop of Krakow, and attended the Second Vatican Council <laughs> and then uh, was elected, of course, as pontiff in the year of the three popes in 17, 1978. Uh, on the 23rd of October, we have the feast day of St. John of Capistrano. Is a, is, uh, sorry, he's a Franciscan saint, died in 1456. A faithful servant of four popes is how he's described in the Ordo, attended the Council of Florence and set out preaching church for the German provinces and 
Poland. And in the Battle, battle of Belgrade, he contracted fever and died in 1456. And finally, on Saturday the 24th, we have the feast day of St. Mar- Anthony, and- Anthony Mary Claret, the founder of the Claritians, who died in 1870. Spanish saint, very much associated, of course, with missionary work, particularly in Cuba and eventually uh, built schools and museums as the, the chaplain to the Queen of Spain. And he was exiled from Spain with the monarchy and died of, uh, in exile in 1870. That's what we have, John, in terms of Celestial Guides this week. No shame, we can't let you off. You've got 90 seconds to tell us about this new guy. Oh, the, the techie. That we've got a new, we've a yeah. new blessed. Uh, Carlo Acutis is his name. Canonised, or sorry, beatified in Assisi last Saturday. The guy is 15. He died of leukaemia in 2006. Had a great devotion to the Eucharist. Great involvement with the internet in its early days, including making a number of sites, tracking all the Eucharistic, uh, Eucharistic miracles around the world. Carlo felt a strong need to help people discover that God is close to us and that it is beautiful to be with him, to enjoy his friendship and his grace. And his feast day is going to be October the 12th. A guy we might keep an eye on in this programme. Definitely. OK, uh, just before we go for our um, gospel section, um, a spiritual communion prayer this morning is, of course, a prayer that we always pray here on the programme, especially for those, and in fact for most of us, for all of us, who can't receive Jesus sacramentally this morning. My Jesus, I desire to receive you into my soul, since I cannot now receive you sacramentally, come spiritually into my soul. I embrace you as already there. I unite myself wholly to you. Never permit me to be separated from you. Amen. Now again, because our interview again is a long interview this morning, we've got no time for uh, for music and we go straight into our gospel section. And before that, we'll ask Shane to pray this prayer. We always pray before reading and reflecting on scripture. Thanks, Shane. Lord, we thank you for putting us in the presence of your word, which you inspired in your prophets. May we approach this word reverently, attentively and humbly. May we not despise this word, but receive all it has to say to us. We know that our hearts are closed, often incapable of comprehending the simplicity of your word. Send your spirit to us so that receiving the word in truth and simplicity, our lives may be transformed by it. Let us not be resistant, Lord. May your word penetrate us like a two-edged sword. May our hearts be open to it. Let not our eyes be closed nor our minds wander. But may we give ourselves entirely to this listening. We ask this, Father, in union with Mary, who used to recite the Psalms, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Thanks for that, Shane. So now we'll, we'll go for the gospel, pray the gospel for today, which for, for Mission Sunday actually is um, taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 17, verse 11, and then 17 to 23. Holy Father, keep those you've given me true to your name, so that they may be one like us. Consecrate them in the truth, and your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, so that they too may be consecrated in truth. I pray not only for these, but for those also who through their words will come to believe in me. May they all be one. Father, may may they be one in us, as you are in me and I am in you, so that the world may believe it was you who sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, with me in them and you in me. May they be so completely one that the world will realize that it was you who sent me, and that I have loved them as you loved me. The Gospel for today, of course, we're taken from, from John, a special for today, Shane.
It's a day, a day set aside with a particular team in the Irish Church. So for our international listeners, we apologise for the confusion that this is probably causing. So today is Mission Sunday in Ireland. Of course, it is the Sunday set aside. Um, if churches were open, of course, across the country, there would be a special collection taken up today in aid of what is called the Pope's uh, Universal Solidarity Fund. Uh, which used to be the fund for propaganda fide. Now, as someone uh, who was on the receiving end of this particular fund, I know exactly how important it is in terms of missionary dioceses and congregations across the world. It supports the worlds of the mission in terms like building churches, uh, schools, uh, pastoral centres, training catechists, providing uh, catechetical materials and all that kind of air support for the young churches, particularly in Africa and Asia, and also the bare bones to kind of build up the church and the church structures around the world. So it is a very key part of the fundraising that is done each year. And it goes, and of course in Ireland, it's known as World Mission Sunday. This year, the team for it is very much focused on Pope Francis's message, focusing on the message from Isaiah, here I am, send me. And the whole call to mission that we have, particularly even in the current crisis, Um, You know, even despite the fact that we are in a period of disorientation and fear provoked by the current, uh, what would you call it, current international crisis with the coronavirus, um, the Lord continues to ask, whom shall I send? Even as we touch our frailty in the pain and debt we are experiencing, we are also reminded of our deep desire for life and liberation from evil, is what the Pope says in his message. Um, he just uh, he reminds us that we are missionaries with Jesus the missionary and all of us are called to be missionaries in whatever form and, and place in life that we are called um, Jesus he's missioned by dying on the cross we find ourselves precisely when we are, give ourselves to others Jesus, Pope Francis continues our mission our call our willingness to be sent originates in Christ's own vocation as the Father's missionary, the one that came to bring the message of God's love and mercy to us. He reminds us that the church is missionary and that we have a response. It's a response in relationship. Mission is a free and conscious response to God's call and it can only be discerned when we have a personal relationship of love with Jesus present in his church. And of course, he ends with the final question, whom shall I send? And it's a question addressed more to us and awaits a generous and convincing response. So now we'll go for our, 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 our commercial break and then come back again and we'll listen to Father John, John Roach sharing his journey with us as he travels through Malawi. So welcome back again to Come and See Inspirations. My name is John Gilly. So today we continue with part two of my interview with Father John Roach and his faith journey. This week, Father John shares with us a very challenging time of his life during his time ministering in Malawi. So let's hear this. 1970, this was 1972, I, I, I wrote a letter to my mother, actually, at one stage, saying to her, you know, I thought I was coming from a first world church to a third world church. And I said, I'm not sure that that's right. Somehow the, the church that I find here is, I think, much, clearer, much nearer to the church of... Acts 2, uh, church as community, and the church that maybe Vatican II put before us, uh, and that we are together, the church, and that like I as a priest, I have a ministry, but you as a, uh, a baptized member of the church, you have your ministry, and it's, it's a much your community, your church, as it is mine. And I found that throughout my time in Malawi, and generally in Africa, um, the lay involvement has been wonderful um, and has, I think, has just enhanced the church 
so much. And I mean, that was 50 years ago, as you mentioned, when, when, when lay involvement was, was so active in what you thought was a third world country, but really they had so much to maybe to teach the Western world. But anyway, you, you, this was your work for your first four or five years, was it further in, in this particular parish? Did you move on from there? Or? Yeah, actually, I, um, I was three years in that first parish and then I was moved to the cathedral parish in Mzuzu town itself uh, because I was, um, the bishop felt I had a good charism with young people. And just to say there, John, um, one of the things that helped there is that uh, football, uh, Malawians and Africans in general, they love football. Number one sport is football. So I was able to get the youth together, you know, and get get tournaments going in the parish. And I played myself and there were, um, the white man is called Mzungu in, in Malawi. And um, they were sort of surprised to see this young Mzuzu tugging out and being able to play football very fairly well. Um so I think the bishop saw some of that, and he brought me to, to as I say, the cathedral parish. Uh, I, it was a different parish because it was partly urban and partly rural. Um, but uh, again, the lay, of all, lay, lay participation was wonderful. And it was there, too, that we started setting up the basic Christian communities. Every area of the parish had its own sort of structure that it would have meant met once a week to break the word of God, They'd look at their sort of the needs as a as a, a Christian family, and try to answer those sort of needs. Um, I w- I was playing first division football with uh, one of the teams um, in 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 Mzuzu for those years, and a great I would see like sports as as evangelical tool at times. Um, the number of people who came to see me like after a while, saying, "Well, Father, you know my my." My marriage hasn't been blessed, and I would like to have the marriage. And I th- one man, I said, I've been with you for three years, and this is the first time you... So obviously he was sort of watching me, he was looking at me, and then he felt, yeah, I can talk to John about this, I can talk to Father John about this. So I found it very... You know, uh, they, they saw you in a different role. You weren't just uh, the, the, the uh, minister of worship up there with his alb and all the rest, but uh, it was a flesh-and-blood man. And it, uh, they were able to relate to that as well. So I, I was, uh, I enjoyed again those uh, those four years. I suppose one of the things that did strike me there is that uh, the political reality started to hit me. Um, Malawi was at that time it was ruled by Hastings Banda, who was a well, it would have been at one stage a sort of referred to him as a benign dictator. But uh, he was very much, and the Malawi Congress Party were, uh, they called the shots with regard to the country. And if you didn't uh, uh, follow their dictates, you were in trouble. And they had what they called the Young Pioneers. Uh, somehow, a youth group uh, who were trained to uh, make sure that we tore the line. And um, it was there I got in contact with uh, human rights issues, justice issues. And I did start dabbling there, uh, asking myself the question, you know, uh, is this what God wants for his people, that we live in fear, that we live sort of uh, unsure of who we're talking to? Um, And that was to blossom later on. But I I spent about three years 
three years there, and then I was asked to go to the minor seminary. We had a, we had a minor seminary in in Malawi, uh, young men doing more or less in in we had them in Ireland in here in Ardan Islamic Noise. It was analogous to St Mel's, um, and I'll be honest and say initially I didn't want to go. I, I really enjoyed pastoral work as I saw it, like being with the people. Uh, exploring with the people, worshipping with the people, journeying with the people. I enjoyed that very much, and I felt going into a seminary wouldn't allow me to do that. Uh, but again, uh, I sort of, in the end, I I, uh, I agreed reluctantly, I'd have to be saying. Uh, the bishop was very insistent, no, uh, we need young men like you that would model some sort of something for these young um well, we, we used to refer to them as seminarians, but uh, they were in basically were in the secondary school, but maybe thinking about that. So I went there in, in uh, October. Um, I always feel my struggle to go there was maybe a preparation for something else, because in December I was uh, appointed. At that time, we called it regional superior. I was appointed as leader for our men in Malawi and in, in, in Zambia. That was 79. Um, so we had about 35 Kiltigan priests in Malawi and Zambia. So Malawi and Zambia was one, was, was one um, region. So I was appointed as um, a regional superior, which meant I had to leave uh, the minor seminary. So I, I said to somebody, I had a glorious period of three months in the minor seminary. Um, I got to like it actually. To be honest, I sort of felt at the end, yeah, I could I could spend a bit of time here. Um, but anyway, it was. Uh, but I think the Lord prepared me for because I was quite young. I went in as regional, and I was wondering how I how this because it was very much more leadership with regard to our own priests, leadership with regard to the the care of the priest, um, uh, walking with him and trying to provide occasions where maybe spiritual especially that I might be able to help him we used to have a saying they used to call the regional superior the holy man and uh, I used to laugh and I said my god I'm only a few years ordained and I don't know whether you could give me that title yet but anyway I accepted it and I moved from the north of Malawi to the center to Lilongwe where our um, regional house was and then I, I started my ministry uh, to our priests, some of it would have been just administration, uh, receiving people who were coming in, making sure work permits were up to date and all of that. And the, the main part of it for me would have been the care of our priests, trying to accompany them, because the, the life was not, it's not always easy as a missionary priest. And um, so that maybe there as leader, I would be able to help them along the, the journey. And the fact I had to go up to Lusaka, as far as Lusaka is quite a journey, uh, meant I was on the road quite a bit as well. But uh, it was it was the ministry of leadership, uh, a shepherding role in the ministry of leadership in our society. And you would have been re- relatively young at that particular stage, maybe just in your 40s, early 40s. Would that have been right, Father? Uh, a lot younger, John, actually. I... I I think I was one of the youngest. Actually, I was 32 when I was appointed. Uh, when I was appointed uh, uh, regional, so um, 
yeah, I was I was very young, um, and you know that had its own uh, its its own challenge, I suppose. Like some of the men who were let's say under me <clears throat> were men who were my professors, or men who were my spiritual directors, and I was sort of saying, gee, how am I going to what am I going to be able to say to these men? But uh, as, as time went on, like I. I, I I was able to do it, you know, and I I think for for eight years I, I I certainly I tried as much as possible to to care for our own men and to to make sure that they had what they needed to live well and to be good ministers of the gospel. Just go back a second now, Father. Just just something going through my mind here. Um, what percentage of um, uh, people were in Malawi were Catholics? Or even Christian. Well, uh, Catholics at that time would have been about twenty percent. Okay. Uh, Christian would have been about forty something. Because the predominant uh, group in uh, Malawi that were Presbyterians. So, in actual fact, there were a lot of uh, Northern Ireland ministers who came out in the in the early days. So they were there actually before us. Uh, so they would have been up to like if we were saying. 20%, they would have been certainly up to 30% and maybe beyond that. Uh, then you had at that time, the, the, the Muslim population was quite small. Now, I, I think it has grown over the years. Um, then you would have had African traditional religions, um, the Anglican communion community, and the Methodists would be there. So to answer the question, roughly, I'd say around 20%, maybe a bit below that, 18 to 20% would have been Catholics, Roughly about fifty percent Christian. So it would have been a, a different place than Ireland for Catholics to live. Whereas in Ireland at that particular time, it would have been predominantly Catholic. Uh, out, out in Malawi, you were you were a minority of the population if you're a Catholic. Yeah, absolutely, John. And um, you know, I found uh, there was a sort of a, a freedom about that uh, for me. Uh, because you know, I, th- I think where you have sort of a majority, you you can get sort of majority opinions happen to be heard, and and, and that's important. But uh, I think we get stuck in mindsets, and like ecumenism would have been one of the things that um, I sort of tried to work on, and uh, I became much more aware too that like. Every tradition has its own wisdom. It's not just a Catholic tradition that's you know, the, 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 the owner of all the wisdom. And like when you meet other groups, um, whether they were like we, we had a Presbyterian church quite nearby and they were much bigger than us. But I got to know the, 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 the pastor there quite well. And we worked together certainly on, on um, you know, church unity week and uh, if there were sort of development projects like for uh, dispensaries, we try to work together as well. Now, the success or otherwise of that, but somehow, it, 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 I don't know, it brought a greater variety and I think it helped people as well in their choice that they, that they had to, like sometimes in Malawi you would get in one household, uh, three people in different churches. And there weren't all Catholics, I like, guess. Uh, he might he might be a, a, a African traditional religion. So it 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 with with catechumens then you'd be sort of say, well, no, why do you want to be a Catholic? And they had to sort of for themselves as well to sort of uh, 
you know, to voice and to hear themselves say, well, this is why I want to be a Catholic. And I think that there was a lot more maturity in that than some of the stuff I saw when I was growing up here. You know, like we, there was a lot of just, we, we, were, we were following because everybody did it. But people didn't, didn't think through their faith. And I still, I, I, I have a feeling that I'm not even too sure are people doing it today. Even like those who are saying, I'm not going to church. Uh, what are the reasons for not going? Or what are the reasons for saying, well, I don't want to be part of this communion? I'm not always sure that people have thought it through. You know, there might be different circumstances. But anyway, that, that, that's, uh, I found it, you know, enriching. To be, to be with people like that. Like when I started the, the, the youth groups and started the football teams and all the different parishes, there was nobody saying this was just for Catholics. This was for the youth. And anybody joined us, whoever they were. And they were welcome. And we made them welcome. Lovely. And I, I, I think that that would have been, um, to, to me, a very positive aspect of living in a minority situation. And um, not to be overburdened by it, but it did also give us, I would say, a, an energy for evangelization because our, our, our youth were good to go out. It wasn't all done by the priests. It was the youth and it was the lay leaders. They went out, they, 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 like, they shared their faith. Um, I remember just on one occasion, a man coming to me, he was about mid-40s, and he said he wanted to join the catechumenate. And I was sort of saying, oh, true. You know, uh, you're not in some group already. And he said, no. I said, well, what has inspired you? Well, he said, your youth group came out the other day to our village and they helped two of the old people. The Vagogo. The Vagogo would be the old people. And he said they cleaned up their houses, they washed their plates, they took off the dress from the old mama and washed it. And he said, if young people can do that, I want to be part of that. Beautiful. Exactly. You know, and that, 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 that has always remained with me. And that man, I left him, maybe dead, he's more likely dead now because I was a lot younger. But he became a Catholic. And he became a Catholic because of the witness of young people. Becoming a channel again, as we said earlier. Exactly. Okay, 1979, you, you took on this job as leader, I think. And then that was there for seven or eight years. What happened after that, Father? Um, yeah, I was... I was uh, I was re-elected anyway uh, as regional, which would have meant uh, I did six years, and then what? And then I was I was uh, Bishop Jobbit, and the man I spoke about at the beginning, uh, he wasn't well, and there were rumours about you know whether he was going to resign or everything. I was called to Rome, um, and uh, I'd have to say. Uh, I was utterly amazed at why, why me, and I started talking, thinking, you know, have I made mistakes or whatever. Mm. But anyone, when I got to Rome, they, they they spoke, they wanted to put me in as, they call it, an apostolic administrator uh, of the Diocese of Mzuzu, Bishop Dobbin, and was resigning on health grounds, and they were putting me in basically as an acting bishop, but without, without, let's say, the full powers of bishop. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I'd have to say, John, I was, I knew it and I was, I, I was terrified of it. I was okay. terrified of it because I, I knew the, the, the situation and, uh, the local indigenous clergy did not want an, another young white man, yeah. uh, to be leading them. They wanted one of their own. 
And I, I, I really felt that I said to myself, I found it difficult enough and I had to pray about it. Um, I, and obviously in the end, I accepted to go there. But I was very much aware that this would not be an easy part of my journey. And it wasn't. So tell us what happened, your, your experience of that feather working in this position. Well, when I when I went up there, Richard, initially, um, like some of the some of the, the the indigenous clergy said to me, "We don't want you," uh, and uh, I sort of said, "Well, look, this is yeah, we have to take that somehow. God is in all of this, so I ask you to work with me and um, see what we can do together." So. Uh, Gradually, like uh, as I, I would be fairly good for delegation and for teamwork. Uh, so with the council there, we started looking at the diocese, and uh, um, I think as as a, as a sort of a focus and a direction came um, among the clergy. Certainly, there was more acceptance of of me, uh, but uh, that desire for one of their own was always there. I said uh, I enjoyed, you know, I, I, I've always enjoyed people. I, I, I enjoyed sort of, I administered all the sacraments except ordination. So I was the one to do confirmation and all of that. Um, and they were, they were, they were great occasions. Uh, the people of God are, are full of uh, blessings and full of joy and full of welcome as well. Uh, so we were doing a lot in the diocese, trying to continue the work of Bishop Jovidon, uh in leadership training, in development work, and in formation in you know in general. Uh, apart from you know the the the, the care of, uh, we did a lot of sort of on worship um, uh, with the people there, and I suppose it was there too as well when I became very conscious of the political reality. Um, I think the the like I was leader now of this of this diocese, and um, the, the political leaders around they really didn't know how to handle me um, because I was young and they would have uh, like generally they tried to use the thing of power and that I would submit to that, and I made it very clear. You know, I will work together with them, but uh, I was leader of this community and I had a responsibility to that as well. And within that, yes, we, we, we worked together for, you know, for a better Malawi, for a, a more just Malawi. Um, and I, at one time, the, the, just as an example of the president came to uh, Mzuzu, and of course I was, I was given a time to meet him uh, with some of the Catholic members and uh, the regional minister, who was the big political man, he came over to me and he said, uh, you know, he said, uh, we don't want any political issues when you meet the president. Um, you know, it's a great privilege for you to meet the pre president. So uh, make sure that what you say is according to the party lines and according to uh, what we want to hear. So I, I sort of said to him, I said, uh, I, I remember saying to him, I wouldn't tell you what to say, um, so I would ask you as well to respect that I am a leader here as well, and that I will say what I think is appropriate. So 
So I went to meet, we went to meet the president, you know, and at that time there was flooding in, in, in the north of uh, our diocese. And I, I brought that to him, you know, and uh, I, I, was, I was respectful, but I was also respectful of the community that I was representing. And that they were they were going through difficult times. So that political reality. And um, one time, one time, one of our church leaders was taken in uh, into prison, and uh, the charge against him was that he sneered at the president. Now I went down to try and uh, get him released, and wouldn't. And he spent three years in prison because they said he sneered. And this was a man in his mid sixties. It broke him. That 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 three years broke him. So there was that whole area of justice, human rights, judiciary was certainly um, coming more to the fore for me. And um, I felt, too, that I was in a forum now at the Bishop's Conference that I could do something about that, that I could speak about that and maybe, you know, maybe influence policies in the church with regard to witnessing to justice and human rights. Certainly a challenge for you there, Father John. Um, how did you? How, what sort of reaction did you get amongst the the bishops' conference? To your thoughts? Um, I would say initially the thought I was uh, I was too strong. Actually, one of them said to me once, as he said, "You know, if you want anything to happen here, you're 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 going to have to uh, you know tone down." And I did that actually, um, but like some, there was one of the bishops before who uh, who had made a stand, and the Malawi Congress Party treated him very roughly. So there was sort of uh, there was a certain history there, but the history of that time was a history of complying with what the party wanted, and the church would be a sort of a silent, a silent voice. So uh, yeah, it, it was it was divided. Uh, I was the youngest by far. There was one Italian, and all the rest were native Malawians. So, like, they cherished their freedom, and they sort of felt that uh, maybe we shouldn't be upsetting the whole uh, issue at this stage. So, uh, in the conference, I would say there was this, there was certainly a reluctance, uh, a certain amount of feeling that uh, I was too strong initially. I did temper that, I must say. But uh, I think, too, that, um, you know, the spirit was working. The spirit was working there. Uh, like, I worked, I was in charge of religious in Malawi, and most male and female religious have brought up very challenging documents with regard to the church in Malawi and uh, the state of the country. So I was sort of listening to that, and I was able to bring some of that to the conference. So I think to, uh, to John to start to say it wasn't just about me. I think the spirit, and uh, you know, eventually the 1992 letter to me was yes, I had a, I had a role to play, but the primary role was the spirit, and was the spirit that gave us that, I suppose, unity to speak with one voice. Because up to that, I I think we found it difficult enough to speak with one voice. But obviously the Holy Spirit knows what channels to use. And here we go again. Uh, you have been used uh, the way the Holy Spirit wanted to use you. So what happened then, Father? I mean, obviously you worked through this period of time as being apostolic administrator of that particular diocese. What happened then? 
Well, I, I think, John, just to bring that time um, in uh, around uh, the beginning of 1992, um, I was part of a delegation that went to see the Minister of Education about Catholic schools and all of that. And that was a, it was a very unsatisfactory meeting because it really felt at the end of it, we felt that this was what they were saying was pay up and shut up. You have no voice, but we will accept your money. And we weren't prepared just to accept that at that time in Malawi. So the, the, the conference of, we, uh, we had two meetings every year, Bishop Conference, and the conference of January, uh, our report was given. And the chairman to the conference said, I think we need to write a letter on these issues. I think we should write a pastoral letter to the Catholic community of Malawi on these issues and on other justice issues. Which, to be honest, John, turned away, it blew my mind. Uh, I never thought we were even near there. So they asked me if I would be chairperson for that, for the drawing up of that. And we selected, there were all men at that stage, and all about six people to help me um, draw up that the, the, the letter. Uh, and that was in January. So I met them, like, uh, as time was of the essence. So I called this group together, and uh, they were both white and indigenous. And uh, they were really enthused by, by the bishop's decision. They were really enthused and said, thank God, something is happening here. So within about two weeks, we had the whole letter ready. Uh, we, we had it completed, and we, we titled it Living Our Faith. And the basic issue that we were looking at was, what does it mean to say, I believe? I believe in Jesus. I believe in the kingdom. I believe in justice. I believe in love. What does it mean in this political, social political reality? So we looked at human rights. We looked at uh, the judiciary, the freedom of the judiciary, press, and all of those sort of things. And uh, after about two weeks, I, there was a special conference of the bishops. Uh, I brought it up. I brought a completed copy up. And um, we we spent the night. The, the Archbishop Giona, who was in Blantyre, said, let's spend the night at this. And we'll come back the next morning and we look at it. Um, so the next morning, the first thing he said was, this is a wonderful document. And I, I must say, I was amazed because... Uh, when, as you know, maybe a bit about Africa, if the chief speaks, like in the way we all speak, which is sort of said we've got over a major hurdle. So we spent the day actually just going through it, and it was there that the, the Malawian bishops especially to put in some beautiful proverbs. If you know anything about Africa, the wisdom of Africa is very often found in its proverbs. And uh, just one of them, in, in uh, Tumbuga, Mutu Mozi Susenzadenga. One head doesn't hold up the roof. Now, that's talking about delegation and about uh, you know, teamwork and all the rest. So it's calling into question dictatorship and all of that. So at the end of the day, it was finished. We had agreed. So I was, I was asked to look after the printing, which we did. And we got it throughout the country, which was an amazing. I mean, if the spirit wasn't there, it would never. We got it throughout north to south. And on the first Sunday of Lent, 92, it was proclaimed in every Catholic church in Malawi and was 
you know, accepted in, 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 in different sort of levels. Like people were initially astounded by it because they'd never heard any questioning at all of the political reality. Uh, but then in the church where I was, people started ululating. And one woman said to me, thank you, you have opened our throats. A lovely image when you think of it. So, uh, but of course, the, the party were enraged, really were enraged. And uh, the, the, the following, following day, we, we were called to Blantyre and we were interrogated for the day. And uh, uh, it became very clear that uh, they were certainly isolating me. Um, if you looked at the papers even, those days following, um, it was this young radical Irish man, uh, a known IRA activist, who was who was stirring up all of this. Uh, so they isolated me very quickly. I was a bit surprised with that. I did, I really wasn't expecting so quickly. So um, I was under basically the European Union and the British government were very supportive. And they said, look, we better look after you for, because your name, they, they had put a, uh, they wanted to kill me. And um, they had designated a place on my journey back to Mzuzu. So for three or four days, I was I was basically under house protection. I would put it more than house arrest. I was living in the, the French ambassador's residence because he said, we can give you some some protection here but after about four days i said look this is finished i i've i signed that as leader of the community in the north and that's where i need to be so uh, they wanted to put me in the into the boot of the car so that i wouldn't be seen on the way back up and i said i will lie on the back seat but i will not lie on the boot the boot of a car for anybody um so I, I, I went back up then, um, that was about a week afterwards, after the letter was proclaimed. And for the next six weeks, I, I mean, there were all sorts of rumours. I was dead, I was in prison, I was beaten. Uh, you know, I was never really in prison uh, or beaten. But my life was definitely online and on the line. And I, I knew that, I knew I could be. And I had to face it myself, I had to face the possibility of, of my death. Um, and I did. I faced that with some of my own companions there. I, I talked it out as well as you can talk it out at whatever I was. I was about 42 or 3, you know. Your own society now, the, your own religious congregation that you were a member of, what were their thoughts on all of this time? Uh, I, I would say for those in Malawi as such, uh, they wondered. I think they wondered whether it was too strong or... Um, but... Overall, our men, and we had a man, man called their father, Padre Gomalia, a Mayo man, and, and Pat had made huge efforts in the areas of, of justice, and he had taken a lot of, um, you know, personal initiatives that caused him, you know, that uh, the party would not have been happy with him. So overall, in Malawi and Zambia, we were very committed to, to, to that uh, agenda of justice issues and trying to bring justice about for the people, but at different levels. I mean, uh, some people would have you know, been very strong about it. Others would have been less strong about it. I think at the level of, of the society in Ireland, 
they were very, very affirming, very supportive throughout it all. And even like when my life was uh, under threat, I had to keep contact with my family very well and uh, keep contact with me. So I would say overall, John, that society would have been very supportive because in the chapters that we have had, um, you know, over those years, uh, the issues around justice and peace were very predominant. And we were sort of saying, we as missionaries, we have a contribution to make in this in this area. And uh, they would have supported anybody. And so we, even up to the day, we have a man, Kevin O'Hara in Nigeria, who would be very, very much involved in justice issues, Gabriel Dolan in Kenya. Uh, so we've had a sort of a long tradition of involvement in justice issues, uh, human rights issues in our society. And I, would, I found them very supportive. So it came to the time when they got a little bit more serious and you had to make a decision maybe to leave the country, was that it? <laughs> as as the man said, John, it got a lot more serious. <laughs> uh, I was at actually, uh, there were rumours around, but I actually, in fact, I thought, initially I thought I was going to be expelled. But as the weeks went on, I thought it was, um, uh, that, that was lessening. So Holy Week, I, I decided to visit as many of the parishes. And I was at a place called Mzimba on Good Friday. Uh, and we just had started uh, the, the, the ceremonies for Good Friday. And I heard this car m- moving in beside the church and I was called out. Um, there were two from Emigration Malawi and two CID. And they said they had been informed that they were to find me with a prohibited person's letter. Um, and I, it's funny, I was very calm at that stage. Um, and I said, what are the reasons for this? And they said, we're not here to give reasons. We have been sent, and this is the letter. Uh, I said, where does it come from? And they said, uh, this comes from the top, which meant it would have been the president and some of his cronies. So I, for a moment I did, I will I sign it? And then anyway, maybe the spirit acted again. I said, I signed it. And I always remember it was uh, it was ten past three, and one of the CID looked at his watch and he said, "You're to be out of Malawi by ten past three tomorrow." Uh, and somehow that really hit me when when he said that, it, uh, the reality of it, you know, really hit me. That uh, so I I, I Malawi is a respectful country, so I saw them to the car, I went back and. I finished the ceremonies for that day and then some of the religious were outside waiting for me because they'd seen the car and I told them, I said, I've been expelled. And um, two of the sisters started crying and then, I don't know, that sort of, that, I suppose, the tears sort of touched something in me Um, and I started crying. Um, But I knew 24 hours, so I had to get back to Mzoo and, uh, which was about an hour and a half. I know it was two hours and a half. So I got back there and some of the priests had heard about it and a lot of tears, a lot of prayer, but uh, there was no way, like I uh, I tried to get in contact with some of our, you know, our leadership and sort of saying, well, John, it was, I think it was a Friday evening, Saturday morning. There was nothing really that they could do. They weren't going to change anyway. So 
some, I remember going into my room and uh, looking at what did I want from here. And I tell you at the end, John, when you're put to that sort of situation, it gives you a, re a realism that uh, we carry too much with us. I left Malawi with one bag. There were things like pictures, maybe my Bible and things like that that were important. But uh, I think, you know, even still, I think we get ourselves caught up with materialism and things. But when it comes to the final reality, uh, we can travel with very little. So the following morning, it was, it was Holy Saturday, but we said Mass in, in, in the little chapel in Mzuzu, and I started my journey down to, uh, to Lilongwe, which was about, about a four-hour journey. Um, halfway there, the, the, the British government has set up, had sent up, um, I would say, they were sort of protection for me. And uh, they pulled me in inside the road and said, no, we will not be happy until you are out of Malawi. So we are providing, and they were armed, we are providing protection for you until you get out of Malawi. Um, uh, it was enormously painful. And uh, um, I, I suppose it was traumatic, and I didn't know how, how traumatic it was. I'd spent 21 years in Malawi, and I loved it. I loved the country, and I loved the people. And here you were, given 24 hours to get out. Uh, and this was it, like you were, you were, you were on the, that final journey out of there. So, you know, um, I, 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 went, I went down to the long way and I met some people there that I knew. And some of the bishops had come up to bid farewell to me. At one stage, the bishops had said, you know, if one is uh, treated badly, we're all treated. Um, I'm not sure that that uh, worked out in the end, but at least they were there to say goodbye to me. And then I went by road um, to Zambia. I knew they were waiting at the airport. And somehow it was like a little victory for me. I said, well, I'm not going to give them the opportunity to stamp my passport as a prohibited person. So I came to uh, came to the border at a place called Mchinji, and two of the men there knew me, and they said, "Ah, oh, what are you doing here? You should be at the cathedral for Holy Saturday." So I just sort of said, "Look, I'm just going across to see the bishop for a while." They hadn't heard anything about it. Emigration uh, informed the airport, uh, not the, the the road sort of uh, exit. So I went to Mzuzu, I went to Chipata uh, and, and a few days, I rested there for a few days. I was very confused and to be very, very, very pained. I died, I'd be very, I spoke to my mother at that time and she was, I mean, she was shocked by the whole thing and, you know, what have you done wrong? And uh, sort of said, nothing wrong, mother, but uh, sometimes she calls for this. I, I was saying that and I wasn't truly believing it for myself. But I went up to, uh, Lusaka then, and there was a, a man called Brendan Rogers. He was first consul to the Irish Embassy, and Brendan was wonderful. He he, he looked after me very well, and uh, yeah, yeah, he provided hospitality for those few days that I was there, and uh, uh, I felt very secure there. But I suppose what really came to to me was the sort of the trauma build, you know, as one of our former students in Kiltegan said to me, Roach, I never thought that this would happen to you. I suppose I never thought it would happen to me myself either. But uh, again, the spirit works in different ways. And Father, can I just ask you there, maybe at this point, how, how did the church continue uh, 
in Malawi after you left? Because that letter was still out there. Ah, uh, yeah. Uh, it's certainly my expulsion. Um, it 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 did affect, but uh, like <clears throat> I would say, from like it's always difficult. From what I heard, <clears throat> that it did continue. That the, like somehow there's they all say the pen is more powerful than the bullet. Well, at least it's voiced, and at least that, that word is spoken. It, it germinates. And the church did, I would say, like in, in quiet ways to try, to try and continue it. But it did learn, lead to a whole movement for looking for democracy for Malawi. And that, that movement was culminated in two years afterwards, where President Band and the Malawi Congress Party felt that they could no longer refuse and that a referendum for multi-party democracy or the continuation of one-party rule. And it was over 85% in favour of multi-party democracy. So that letter is regarded as being the catalyst. It's still regarded as being the catalyst in Malawi of a new time and of a new thinking. And... Uh, so I think the church, I mean, the, the, the church tried, but it was, uh, I, I would say, other agents became maybe more important. There was a, a public affairs committee which was set up, and that was the different churches and different NGOs. And in actual fact, I think they were the ones who took it on. If I was sort of saying for anything, John, in the area of uh, ecumenism, our letter did more than all the talking because all the churches said, yes, this is true. Thank God somebody has said it. So the churches, the Presbyterians, the Anglicans, the, the Methodists, they all came behind us and became behind that letter. And they were, they were the ones in actual fact, I think, who took it more aggressively forward than the Catholic Church. So we finished part two of Father John's story here. And we'll continue the final part of our interview next week. So to finish the programme today, John Michael Talbot sings Here I Am Lord. So next week, God bless now. Bye.
Whom shall I say? 